Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 50th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I just want to pause here since this is the 50th of these COVID calls and just to make the point that I could not have done these without the amazing support of the disaster research community, journalism community, and those who've given their time to help support this effort, including Drexel University, the many guests that I've had on, um, those who've appeared more than once, including Sam Montano and Esther Chernak, and also to acknowledge my research and production assistants, Gabriel Knowles, Amber Ferreira, and Bucky Stanton. We are surely gonna keep doing these COVID calls. I can't say for how long, but um, I'm planning through the summer and into the fall already. Um, we're learning more every day about this disease and how it's shaping our society. And we need as much knowledge and as much solidarity as we can get at this time. So I hope COVID calls continues to play even a small role towards that work. Today, we have a discussion about lungs, breathing, and COVID-19 with Javi Carroll, James Dodd, and Sarah Milov. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 22nd, 2020, there are 5,169,907 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 5,047,377 cases yesterday. 1,591,242 of those are in the United States, up from 1,562,714. Yesterday, there are now a total of 95,533 deaths reported in the United States, up from 93,863 deaths reported yesterday. In the United Kingdom, there are 255,541 reported cases with 36,475 deaths. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day and I'd like to continue that now. This is an obituary of Mary Agiwa Agipong, written by Melissa Godin, and this was published in Time Magazine in April. Firefighters and hospital staff at the Lutton and Dunstable University Hospital in Lutton, England, held a minute of silence on April 16th after 28-year-old Mary Agiwa Agipong a pregnant nurse who worked at the hospital, died of COVID-19 while her baby was saved. Agipong, who also went by her married name, Mary Boateng, tested positive for COVID-19 on April 5th and was hospitalized two days later. Agipong underwent an emergency C-section sor shortly after she was admitted and gave birth to a baby girl. The new mother died on April 12th. Her daughter, who was named Mary in memory of her mother, is doing very well, according to hospital officials. Agipong's husband is currently self-isolating and has been tested for COVID-19. Mary worked here for five years and was a highly valued and loved member of our team, a fantastic nurse and a great example of what we stand for in this trust, David Carter, CEO of Bedfordshire Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust said in a statement. Agipong completed her last shift on March 12th and had not returned to work in the subsequent weeks. While working, she had not been treating COVID-19 patients. It's unclear where Ms. Agipong contracted the virus and whether she had any pre-existing medical conditions that put her at higher risk. Since her passing, a GoFundMe page for Agipong's family and newborn child had raised more than $200,000 by April 17th. The campaign creator, Rhoda Asiadu, wrote, it is humane for us to take care of them in every way we can during this heavy and trying time. She added, we will forever miss you. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today and introduce our guests. First is James Dodd. James is a consultant senior lecturer in respiratory medicine at the Academic Respiratory Unit, University of Bristol, UK. 
His research focuses on the multi-system impact of lung disease, and he is currently undertaking neuroimaging studies of brain pathology and cognitive function in patients with COPD. His clinical work is at Southmead Hospital, Bristol, where he has responsibility for the care of patients with complex COPD and asthma. Javi Carroll leads the Life of Breath Project at the University of Bristol, UK. She is professor of philosophy at the University of Bristol, where she also teaches medical students. Her research examines the experience of illness and of receiving health care. She is the author of, among many works, Phenomenology of Illness, which appeared in 2016. She's also the author of Illness, which appeared in 2008 and then republished in 2013, which was shortlisted for the Wellcome Trust Book Prize, and the author of Life and Death in Freud and Heidegger, which was published in 2006, among many other books. Sarah Mylove is a historian based at the University of Virginia. Her work focuses on how organized interest groups and everyday Americans influence government policy and the terms of political debate. Right now, she's beginning a project that begins the that examines the relationship between gender and whistleblowing in the modern United States. Her first book is titled The Cigarette, A Political History. It's a history of tobacco in the 20th century that places farmers, government officials, and citizen activists at the center of this story. Sarah, James, and Javi, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to remind people that you can get your questions in a number of different ways to do that. You can um, put them into the YouTube live chat or you can put them on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of disaster. And sometimes people like to email me questions in the middle of COVID calls and I welcome that as well. So send those to me directly at sgk23 at drexel.edu. So I'd like to start the way of always been uh, starting these conversations just by finding out how people are doing and how things are where they are. So with that in mind, Sarah, could I start with you? How are, how are you, where are you, and how are things there? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. I personally am doing fine. Um, my mother moved in with us, which is great because I have a small child. And so we get a little bit of uh, childcare relief, but also I think psychologically, it's been really good for me to have my, my mother in the household as part of our quarantine pod. Um, Virginia, like where you are in New Jersey, like many states um, in the United States is a really uneven terrain. The DC region has the highest rate of positive test results in the United States, and that includes the very dense, uh, populous counties of Northern Virginia where COVID continues um, unabated. The death, the state just reported its highest uh, number of deaths over the past 10 days, just today. Um, but where we are in Charlottesville, it's uh, affluent and uh, in the central western part of the state, so more remote from any hotspots we're doing okay. Um, and there's pot, patches, pockets of the state that have very low rates. Um, but in Northern Virginia, in Richmond, and in Norfolk, where there's a lot of uh, military installations, and uh, Richmond and uh, Eastern part of the state also have a very high African-American population, things look uh, a lot more grim. Javi, let me ask you the same question, and let me also thank you and James for staying up late. It's 10, after 10 o'clock there in the UK. But how are things where you are, Hoppy? So I'm in uh, Bristol, UK, and we've been similarly lucky. I think people have taken it very seriously and we've had uh, low rates of infection. Um, I, James will say more about what's going on in the hospitals. I haven't been near a hospital for a very long time now, but... Um, there, in the beginning, I think there was a real sense of huge anxiety and panic amongst people. Um, and I think that subsided and people have kind of fallen into a, a, a rhythm of, you know, the, the new normal, as sometimes people call it. Um, I think it's very abnormal, but we can, we can come back to that later. Um, I think the main challenge for our families, we've got two boys, and I think the impact for them of not attending school has been far more profound than uh, anybody anticipated. I certainly didn't anticipate that 
um, they would um, they would change so much as, as, as a result of being cut away from their friendship groups and their peers and their routine, their, their school routine. James, how are things with you? Um, unmute. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm in Bristol with Javi. Um, the southwest of the UK has been relatively lower, lower prevalence of the COVID infections. Um, I think our peak of this first wave, if that's going to be the first wave, um, was around about Easter, certainly in terms of hospitalizations. So the, 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 the hospital that I work in is one of the biggest in the southwest of the UK. We serve about a million people. Um, and we had probably about 600 admissions over the six to eight week period of people with quite severe COVID related pneumonias. Um, so we're, we're past the peak. We're um, first week into an, a, a relative lightening of a, of a lockdown. So we've gone from being able to have an hour's worth of exercise a day to now being able to stay outside as long as we want to exercise. For those who have been advised not to shield, that is, and stay in, who've got long-term health conditions. Um, but on a personal uh, level, like to, to, to echo Javi's point, actually, you know, I've got two young kids. We we had to um, self-isolate for two weeks because we had coughs and colds, but I don't think any of us have, have had it. But actually, when we, we had symptoms, widespread te uh, testing was not available. And that's been one of the limiting factors in the UK. There was We just had to presume that we had it. Um, our kids have actually gone to school because we're both me and my wife work in the NHS. So we're key workers so there's been some school provision for them mm. which has its own anxieties of kids going into schools with other key worker kids of, who by nature have shared our increased risk of having it but um they've actually um enjoyed it and uh, uh, and have been fine i i hadn't kept up with that i didn't realize yeah. so nhs essential workers in the uk they've actually provided yeah they go so to the, their school or some other school no, they go to their school. So key workers. So that's um, people, that's not just NHS. That's uh, police, emergency workers, um, people working in the food food industry and 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 supermarkets. So, but they so they were asked. Each school was asked to provide some provision. Um, so, I mean, our kids' school is quite big. There's about nine hundred kids in it normally, but this, the key worker provision is about um, about fifty kids go. So most of their parents are key workers. So otherwise, it couldn't go. yeah. So um, I want to ask my first question is really going to go to to Javi and to James. And Javi, let me start with you. Um, could you tell us about this? So you're one of the co-leads of this Life of Breath project, um, which is situated across a couple of universities. Can you explain for us a little bit of what this this project is about? I've been trying to read up on it online. It just seems like a tremendous research effort. Can you take us a little bit in behind the scenes? Yeah, sure, happily. Um, so the Life of Breath project is a five-year project. We started in 2014, and we've actually just now finished on the 31st of March. Um, the Durham, it's a joint project between Bristol and Durham. The Durham project is still going for a few more months, but um, it is incredibly ironic <laughs> that we spent five years thinking about the experience of breathlessness. Uh, and trying to kind of, um, I guess, campaign and raise awareness in part that was part of our mission of how um, how harrowing breathlessness is. And now, you know, our work's been done for us, sadly, by uh, the, the the really vast coverage of um, of you know ventilators, breathlessness, silent hypoxia, happy hypoxia discussions and here in the UK this was very much emphasized by Boris Johnson's hospitalization and his mm. headline was um he said he got liters and liters of oxygen which is a, a very funny thing to for anybody who knows a bit about breathing um because we all breathe liters and liters of oxygen every minute um of every day um so the point of the project was not to look at breathlessness and breathing um from a medical point of view, I mean, we did have James on the project as the medical uh, kind of advisor and kind of representative of, of medicine because we were very interested in speaking with medics. But the primary issue for us was how do we bridge this gap between the medical understanding of restlessness and then the, the history, the culture, the spiritual significance, the psychological uh, import of breathing and, and breathlessness in particular. 
So it was an attempt to bridge those two very, very different ways of talking and thinking about breathlessness and to hopefully um, offer health professionals and and medics a a broader way of of conceiving of of breathing. It's not just the the mechanical ventilation taking place in our chest, but it's something that is profoundly connected to our mood, to our emotion, to our sense of well-being, and of course, to our sense of of anxiety and dread. And so this is a project that's brought together people from across multiple disciplines, and you've been teaching medical students. Yes. Um, so the project was primarily for social science and humanities scholarships. So people from history, I was the philosopher, there were people from um, you know, literature, medical anthropology, um, there were people who were particularly who were practitioners interested in, for example, dancing movement, in singing. Um, and really the attempt was to say this is such a such a unique, such a deep, such a pervasive aspect of our every waking moment. Um, we needn't reduce it to just the medical side of things. Um, so it, was, it really wasn't much about sort of the physiology of the lung, which I think is very well understood, or about breathlessness, again, is a warning sign for a number of diseases and so on. It wasn't really about that. It was about what is the significance and the meaning and um, what is the experience of breathing like for, um, for people. And that includes both normal breathing and also what, what I call pathological breathlessness, which is breathlessness that people who have respiratory or cardiac conditions or particular um, anxiety and panic disorders. Mm-hmm. Oh, James, then you, you participated in this from the medical perspective. How has the life of breath, the concepts that you've, you've picked up there, how can you apply that to COVID-19? What's some of your thinking about COVID-19 and some of these issues raised in the Life of Breath project? Um, well, I mean, I've, it's been over the five years, it's been an amazing project to be part of as a clinician um, and not having had much contact with medical humanities. Um, so I think I'm a very different, hopefully very different physician at the end of the five years than I was at the beginning. Now, so how does that make me approach COVID? Well, um, I'll take it from a slightly non-medical angle. In terms of pe- people, I got contact uh, about advice from yoga therapists, from physiotherapists, from uh, allied health practitioners who were getting a lot of demand from people wanting to know how they can protect themselves from COVID, how they can deal with the breathlessness, which, you know, this latent desire was there in the background, but it just rocketed. All these people were wanting to know what are, what are, what are the medical components of that? Are there any things that people can do? How can they manage their anxiety? Which is, um, was interesting. And the life of breath put me forward as somebody who might be able to inform that, that type of advice. Um, and in terms of you know bringing that that work into the hospital, certainly um, people were presenting with quite a variety of breathlessness syndromes, and you know certainly in as a clinician listening and trying to understand breathlessness, my my approach had changed. But I have to say, perhaps in the in the heat of the the crisis. Um, it was uh, I, I, I probably reverted to type, and, and we were dealing with physiology, and we're trying to support critically unwell patients. So, you know, if I, I suppose that the, the, some of the anxieties that, that that we did struggle with was that 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 humanity, that that ability to care for somebody who's acutely breathless, was made even more difficult than it had ever been. Mm-hmm. We're wearing goggles, face masks, all of the gowns. People are on high flow oxygen. They may be having CPAP masks, these tight-fitting respiratory masks, which are noisy and are difficult to communicate. So, you know, communicating compassionately was 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 very very difficult. Um, so, you know, the, the the essence of providing that kind of level of care was very difficult. There's a, a phrase um, that you introduced me to in our conversations that I hadn't heard much with this happy hypoxia phrase yes you, what does that yeah. mean so you know this 
this disease wasn't on the planet in December, as far as we can tell. And then, you know, so we're trying to learn the medics. One of the things that impressed me was how internationally, how um, connected all of the healthcare professionals were, particularly the respiratory community. As soon as it took off in Italy, they were dealing with hell on earth, but they were getting online, they were sharing their knowledge, they were telling us, they were describing in real time what, what was happening in their hospitals in Bergamo, um, and, and we were getting a lot out of China, actually, as well. So there was certainly this, this, this presentation of people who apparently um, were not as profoundly breathless as you would expect, but their oxygen saturations were very, very low. <clears throat> so that, 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 was, that was kind of this disconnect between what they would expect from a physiological deficit to what they would expect to see somebody suffering from. But, but um, as I mentioned perhaps before, my reluctance in kind of uh, going along this kind of ha disproportionate or happy hypoxia where you've got somebody who looks, appears relatively comfortable and isn't mm -hmm. breathless, but has oxygen saturated in their 80s and much lower than we would expect, is that it, it, it's, it makes the same mistakes we've been making for generations, which is we as clinicians make assumptions about people's breathlessness. Mm. So actually, we're just measuring their oxygen saturations. What we're actually looking at is respiratory rate maybe body position, maybe visual distress, but we actually don't know how breathless they are unless we start to ask them, actually, how breathless do you feel? And to them, that can, that can vary just as much as it can in any other situation. Mm. So, um, Sarah, let me, let me turn to you. When I first started thinking about um, this session, it's interesting, it, it took me until the 50th of these to do this one. It was one of the very first ones I, I thought of, in part because I've had asthma. I have very mild asthma now. As a child, I had um, I had asthma. I'm one of these kids who carried the inhaler around and thinking about breathing is always in, in my mind. And, um, certainly when I think about, um, the, you know, the lung cancer and the trauma, um, that leads to breathlessness in the United States and globally, I think about the tobacco industry. And so I thought of you, uh, and your work. And I wondered if you, um, maybe just to start out, like, What's striking to you about the the way COVID nineteen maps on to? I mean, how are tobacco companies reacting to it, or um, to what's this illuminating for you? You know, being an expert that you are in that in, in the history of that industry. Well, I think from my research uh, into the twentieth century history of the cigarette, one dynamic uh, emerges that is really striking, which is over the course of the twentieth century broadly, the federal government was very invested in promoting the production and also consumption, both domestically and abroad, of cigarettes. Um, and it was not the Surgeon General's report that turned everything on a dime. It was not that everybody was hip to the science and changed their behavior after 1964 when that report came out, um, establishing a causal link between uh, cigarette smoking and uh, lung cancer and cardiovascular disease. It was, in fact, the efforts of grassroots activists to uh, create a new political figure, uh, that of the non-smoker, um, which had not been conceived of as such prior, really, to the 1970s. And the rights of non-smokers were not vindicated by federal bodies, not vindicated by Congress, to this day, not vindicated by OSHA, but instead were vindicated at uh, uh, city councils across the United States, um, and in fact, by the actions of private businesses as well. So what's striking to me when thinking about our political dynamic in the United States right now is a similar kind, uh, more compressed, not over the course of a century, but over the course of the past few months, a similar kind of... Um, uh, indifference to public health on the part of federal officials, at least the ones who are in charge right now, but uh, uh, an attempt by local and state officials um, to, to take public health seriously. And so that dynamic uh, seems pretty familiar to me. Uh, so too does the fact that science does not dictate, you know, political change. Um, and at least in uh, in the case of cigarettes, it was action and activism 
by activists proclaiming that they had rights as non-smokers to inhabit public space in a particular kind of way. Um, and that is perhaps cold comfort right now in a, in a period where uh, routes to public activism are um, more limited because you don't want to gather in public. Um, but a, a final thought that occurs to me when uh, thinking about the toll of cigarette smoking on uh, health generally is that the, the continued existence of tobacco-related disease responsible in the U.S. for approximately half a million deaths annually is kind of the ultimate launderer of epidemics. It becomes the ultimate um, uh, statistic that those who would deny uh, what's going on here would appeal to, uh, mm -hmm. to say, well, half a million people die of cigarette smoking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, wh what's the big deal? I, I wanted to, I want to follow up with you on, on that last point, because I have seen that discussion, um, and the president himself has made similar arguments, maybe not about smoking, but saying but the flu. Yeah. But the flu or this is just some old people who are even said, I think something the equivalent, they're going to die anyway. Uh, the governor of Texas said something like that. Um, you know, what's your, what do you make of, of that? Is that a, a more of a continuity across time in American history that people who have suffered kind of the toll of uh, chronic health conditions because of smoking have often been treated in that way, like almost expen expendable or expected that they will, will suffer and die at disproportionate rates. And that's just normal and natural. Yeah. I mean, I think with um, an unintended consequence of the vindication of non-smokers' rights was a simultaneous vilification of smokers. So in my work, I explore the ways that non-smokers rights activists had to make any argument they could uh, to try to clear the air in public, so to speak. And one very effective argument at work was basically to say, smoking employees are bad employees. They're, they take too many breaks. They break equipment. They're expensive to insure, um, which was persuasive to uh, management, but also had the consequence of stigmatizing smokers. And you can see that, of course, writ large um, in looking at the, uh, the, the income status and educational status of people who continue to smoke in the United States. So, I mean, I think it's, it goes hand in hand uh, with the use of stigma as a public health technique uh, by non-smokers rights activists. But also there's the fact, in addition to that, that people who smoke, it's been, this dynamic has been going on for 40 years, right? The, the non-smokers rights movement has been in existence, um, you know, for, for a while now so that we don't consider, it's just been metabolized into a social fact that 500,000 people die of tobacco related disease and that's their choice. So the continuity uh, that you demonstrated there about the federal government being unwilling, um, let's say, to regulate the cigarette industry. I mean, it's pretty clear that that continuity is, has a lot to do with the vested interests of an industrial position there. I mean, the same would be true, I suppose, with, with safety issues with automobiles and seatbelts, for example. Um, as far as I can tell, there's no vested corporate interest with COVID-19 so, I mean, why, how do you explain the federal failure in this moment? There's something else going on about the sort of incapacity or disinvestment in our public health infrastructure nationally. This is outside the scope of what you study, well, but I'm so I would, fascinated. I mean, I would kind of push back against the idea that there's no vested corporate interest in COVID-19. Not that any corporation does not want COVID-19, but many corporations would like to reopen. Mm. And I think that that is what's the kind of uh, denial of reality seems to be motivating uh, the administration to rev rev the economy again. Mm. Javi, let me let me turn to you. I know you know you you were speaking earlier about breathlessness as something that you've studied, both sort of normal breathlessness, but also you you made a distinction between normal and pathological breathlessness. And I don't. Can you take us inside your research a little bit? there to help us think about what it means to be out of breath? Sure. 
Um, so I think what we're seeing now with COVID-19 is very sudden onset of restlessness um, that becomes very severe very quickly. And, you know, in the good cases where the, there is a positive outcome, it also goes away. I know the recovery is very slow, it takes many weeks, but um, <clears throat> a part of a large part of our focus in our research was on the people, Sarah was just talking about people who are smokers and end up with something like COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, so, or people with, uh, there's a range of other diseases, they're not all smoking uh, related, um, that cause people chronic breathlessness, chronic breathlessness over sometimes decades. So people can live with COPD for a long time. People live with other lung diseases for a very long time. So my interest was in trying to capture and describe the, the general or shared features of that kind of restlessness. And one thing I, um, I found very early on using a philosophical approach, which is called phenomenology, which really focuses on the, the phenomena of things as they appear to us, or experiences, that uh, things as they are experienced by people, is that we use the same term, we use one word, breathlessness, to describe the breathlessness of a healthy person working out or, you know, sprinting to catch the bus, as well as the breathlessness of the person with severe um, lung damage due to a long disease process. Um, and I think they're profoundly different. And what we're seeing now in COVID-19 are precisely the cases of the pathological, the very clearly and very um, deeply pathological types of breathlessness. And what I mean by pathological is I mean that it is breathlessness that is experienced as out of the ordinary. It is breathlessness that is experienced as overwhelming, as frightening, as negative. None of these, um, none of these adjectives would apply to a healthy person working out or dancing and actually enjoying the feeling of exertion and mm. working out or pushing their body to the limit. So I was really interested in how, um, how medics say, say take a healthy health professional or doctor and the patient says to them, I'm breathless. And I was thinking in, in their heads, are they thinking about, oh yeah, I, I feel breathless too when I go on the treadmill. Right. Um, how do we convey to them the, the, the profound difference I was just describing between the good breathlessness and the, and the, and the pathological breathlessness? So that was one thing that I was very preoccupied with for, um, for, for, for part of the, of the research. Um, other things we were interested in is how you can support people who have these experiences uh, of breathlessness over time, not to make them worse than they are. What I mean by that is that our experiences um, often rely, when we experience something in the present, we often look back to past experiences and try to try and gauge how bad is this? How breathless am I? Mm. As, as I was yesterday when I took the stairs or a year ago when I took the stairs. So the idea here is that the experience is not only just not physical, I mean, it's partly physical, but it's also psychological, emotional. Not only is it not just that, but it, it's also cognitive. So there's an element of your... <clears throat> Your, your brain sort of trying to, to gauge the, uh, the severity of the breathlessness. And what happens is that people become conditioned over time through lots and lots of negative and profoundly um, uncomfortable um, experiences of breathlessness to become more and more fearful of those experiences and to try and avoid them. And this mm -hmm. can lead to a vicious circle of, of withdrawing from exercise, not wanting to exert yourself, avoiding mm -hmm. and taking the lift and uh, reducing physical activity, <clears throat> and that's a vicious circle that that, that can be um, bad in lots of other ways. So really trying to think of the experience as not just physical, but also having all these other components, and certainly as something that changes over time. The people who have had breakfasts for a very long time, um, not infrequently also suffer from depression and anxiety. Um, and then the real question is, well, what are the things that should make it better? Can we teach people to be um, 
less hypervigilant about their breathlessness? Can we teach them to experience the breathlessness but judge it to be less negative than it is? Can we use various techniques such as mindfulness, meditation, yoga, soothing, you know, um, to, to, to help people in those, um, in those situations? But I think that the, the main difference is that this is the kind of breathlessness I'm describing now is the one you live with day in and day out for a very, very long time. And it's not the acute situations that James was describing a few minutes ago. Mm. It's, it's really fascinating what you're describing, and it, it is a sort of a, a tough challenge at the core of it, it seems like, because on the one hand, what you're describing is a situation uh, giving people tools to understand that certain kinds of breathlessness um, should not inhibit um, like exercise, for example. So if you have a kind of uh, breathlessness that may lead to anxiety, it, that you would want to move towards managing that so it doesn't make you avoid breathlessness that leads to health. But on the other hand of this, as, as James was describing, and I guess this is a question to you, James, um, how well have people been able to describe their experience of COVID-19? I mean, this comes back to the, the conversation we were having Earlier, yeah. I've seen descriptions all across the map, you know, and the and the way yeah. the cases present all across yeah, the map yeah. from people who could literally have to crawl to the bathroom and mm. can't get up to people, as you yeah. said, who are presenting with a sort of like, I think I'm, I think I'm fine. Tell me I yeah. have this. Yeah, that's a tough that, challenge to somehow balance those two different conversations. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the kind of the diag the the presentation was very varied. It it, it there are the kind of as a typical pattern, but then it manifests different in different age groups. We certainly found that in older people with frailty and multiple health problems, it was a very different disease than in people of otherwise who are fit and healthy. So that the, the older age group would often be far confused, less of the cough, cough and breathlessness. They would have neurological symptoms as potentially the more prominent feature. With younger patients, you know, we cough, fatigue, loss of smell, breathlessness um, uh, were, were, were common and fever. Um, now, going back to breathlessness, I don't think I admitted one patient who wasn't breathless, mm. but their experience of breathlessness was very varied. There were those patients who, you know, to me, if I had to take a, you know, at the end of the bed were not looking as to me as though they're physically in respiratory failure, but then I put the oxygen sats probe on and the oxygen sats were incredibly low. Um, and another person would be, would be very, very uncomfortable. So that, there was that disconnect between the physiology. Now what's going on in the lungs in COVID? Um, again, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a familiar pattern. The, the RNA virus enters the mucous membranes of the nose and the eyes will then replicate and generally cause inflammation within the lungs. Um, and that's, affects the alveoli, which is where the gas exchange takes place and causes the hypoxia. But there'll often be chest pain that goes with it, with the dry coughing. Um, and um, so, so pain and breathlessness was, was the difficulty. I think that the, the as I mentioned earlier, the, the therapies then, well, there's no therapy for COVID. It's all about supportive care. But the, the, the idea of trying to support the lungs and the body as it recovers is an important one. And that the, often the therapies within the barriers to them providing that kind of closeness and support. people you're listening to COVID calls and I'm speaking with Javi Carroll and James Dodd and Sarah Mylove about breathing and COVID-19. Sarah I know you have to go in a minute I want to get one more question um, into you and that's um, to, the, to the degree you can tell how is the tobacco industry perceiving the threat of COVID-19 today? How are they how are they acting? Well I think it's fair to say that the tobacco industry um crafts multiple plans at once. So um, there is reporting that many smokers are using the emergency as an impetus to quit smoking. Really? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, the reporting I've read on this is anecdotal, but 
perhaps over time it will emerge as you know a, a, a meaningful um, uh, node on somebody's decision to quit. Perhaps um, Javi and James can speak more directly to this if they've observed anything um, clinically or in their own research. Um, at the same time, there there is one study that has come out of France that has suggested that nicotine might be protective in some unknown way. Um, and I'd say that anytime you see a study <laughs> suggesting that, you know, that, that might benefit the tobacco industry, we should look very hard at who's funding the study, how it's being used, um, and also counterbalance it against the manifold studies that point in the precise opposite direction. And so perhaps James can speak more directly um, to the state of the science here. But what, what I can say is I have no doubt that the tobacco industry will exploit this uncertainty uh, in a way that will attempt to redound to their benefit. So for example, um, British American Tobacco, large multinational uh, tobacco company, I think the largest uh, multinational tobacco company, um, has announced it announced in a press release in early April that it uh, is in development. It is developing a vaccine for COVID nineteen through one of its subsidiaries. And this is just to say that the tobacco, the modern tobacco industry, is a bio biotech industry, and they will try to leverage this crisis um, toward either a general corporate social responsibility frame, we're invested in a healthy future and uh, creating uh, less harmful products and helping the health of our customers, or we're going to create a new line of products, a vaccine that the press release said, uh, the intention is that its work around COVID will be on a not-for-profit basis. The intention, so we'll see. It's it's fascinating the way you describe that they'd be working on multiple different, even at this time um, in, in this year, that they're still working on these multiple different fronts. One little quick follow-up there. What about how has vaping um, factor into this? Mm. Um, well, I think that um, vaping is not associated with uh, good outcomes from COVID, uh, but and this is where my research in um, non-smokers' rights, I think, is particularly relevant, that, you know, the argument around vaping had always has been that it's a harm reduction technique for the individual smoker and that its effects on non-smokers as, as of yet were Im imperceptible and immeasurable. Most people cannot... Uh, aren't offended by the smell of a vape if they notice it at all. Uh, but I wonder if the fact that you probably can spread COVID by vaping uh, with droplets coming out of uh, the e-cigarette device might complicate that uh, individualized argument that had always been put forth by the proponents of harm reduction. I want to come back to um, Javi and James, if I could ask you um, about some of the peculiarities of this disease in terms of particularly the necessity to have such great distance between, James, you were talking about, between the clinician and the patient, um, which would seem to me make it very hard to have the kind of discussions that are being, that you both have been talking about here um, to, to describe to narrate, you know, how patients are doing, but also about the distance between patients and family. Um, how do you think about those, those problems as sort of unique to COVID or, um, you know, how they may relate to your work more generally, the importance of closeness and talking versus the distress right now of distance between the doctor and the patient and the patient and the family? Yeah, happy to, do you no, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's like nothing I've ever experienced. Um, it's fundamental to everything we do, uh, the, 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 the kind of the infection control aspect of this. As clinicians, you try, and keep, you try and keep your distance from each other. You wear face masks outside of the patient areas. And then when you're in the patient areas, particularly in the aerosol generating procedures, uh, you're in full um, 
protective equipment. Um, it, it, the reality is it's almost impossible to communicate. We try and come up with some forms of humanity where we have a picture of our face, you know, on our, uh, on our, on our tops. Um, I tr we try and give people a rest off the machine to have a conversation. And bear in mind, these aren't just conversations about how are you doing today? These are conversations about things aren't going well. How are we going to manage potentially the end of your life? Mm -hmm. And that's very difficult uh, to, to have those conversations. Um, uh, and and there's, no, there's no good way of doing that, really. Um, the, the distance between the physician and the patient, but also, the, the, more importantly, the patient and their family, they are now isolated in the hospital, critically unwell, and um you know we've got mobile phones but as pe people become more unwell um trying to get time with patients and their families we tried ipads and technology to support that but the same problems arrive in the the, the, the noise of the the treatment gets in the way um but you know we we, we worked with our palliative care colleagues to try and maintain humanity in, in, for people who were we're not going to survive, um, but protect their families as well. So we had to, uh, we had a situation where um, it was clear somebody was dying and that we, they were in having in a bay where we couldn't allow family in for their own safety, but we're able to manage a situation where we brought a one member of family up, kept them outside whilst we made some adjustments to then transfer them into a single room so they could spend a few hours with them at the end. But all of that requires a lot of time and attention to coordinate and, and is very difficult. Um, and this is a tragedy that I've never experienced before and I hope I never experience again. And it's unique to an infectious disease like COVID. These, these difficulties don't present themselves generally in other situations. Javi, can I ask for your, your perspective on that? This, this... Yeah. I mean, just to, to broaden out from what James was describing, I mean, this is this is just harrowing, and um, <laughs> you know, there's been so many failures to, you know, to foresee so many things. This is yet another one of those failures. But um, I think this is a pandemic of of, of uncertainty, a, a pandemic of suspicion, and the suspicion and the uncertainty are pervasive. You know, you, you you suddenly a person walks towards you on the on the sidewalk, and you um, <clears throat> and you think, oh, this is a person who could infect me. Instead of thinking, oh, hey, you know, nice pop, um, <laughs> or or um, not being able, the way in which the, the 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 social distancing measures have just uh, again profoundly changed how we relate to other people. The most natural things that we do with other people are to talk to them face-to-face. -face. The face-to-face -face conversation has been taken away from us. Um, the, 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 the temporal sense, the, the rhythm of, you know, the day, the week, the weekend, all the little things we, we do, you know, you, so in the UK, a lot of people go to the pub on Friday afternoon to, you know, mark the beginning of the weekend. Um, <clears throat> there's a real sense in which our certainties, the routines and habits on which we rely to make sense, if you like, of our existence have just been pulled away very suddenly and very globally, as in comprehensively across all walks of life. And just going back to what I was saying in the beginning about um, about my children, what what we're seeing is just children who are just unanchored and distressed and terribly confused. And there's only so much explaining we can do as adults as to why we are in this situation um, that none of us anticipated. Um, and in fact, some people also have anticipated and didn't. Mm. Um, so the way in which social, the, the, the way in which social interaction, embodied social interaction is so basic, is so fundamental, is so intimately woven into every aspect of our social existence. I think that has been made abundantly clear. And I hope that if and when we recover our previous ways of social communication, we will 
you know, be more mindful of how crucial they are to our to our well-being and to our to our existence, to how we do everything. I want to get to a question here that I received from uh, Mike Fisher. And this is for you, Javi. He said he's very intrigued by your phenomenological description um, as sufficiently granular to distinguish between different types of conditions. Um, and he's referring here to a new book that's out by a colleague of mine, Ali Kenner, at Drexel um, in her book, Breathless. I don't know if you know this, this book in which she describes um, the experience of an asthma attack um, for victims. So I think, could you say a little bit more about you know, sort of bringing the tools of phenomenology to um, to the different types of breathlessness and and the description that people could give and the narrating of of disease. Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, so, some of what we try to do initially, and James can say more about that as well, is we try to think about. <clears throat> The language people use, the, the words, the terminology people use to describe their breathing, or indeed their children's breathing. Um, so you know, there's there's various kinds of medical information that has to do with um, rasping, gasping, the rate of the breathing, um, whether it's harder to inhale or exhale, whether the pain, the chest pain, is there permanently or only when you're inhaling or exhaling. Again. James will James can explain that much better than me. But what we were interested in is again the miscommunication that arises in um, in the in language use. So I think um, medical terms can be narrow and can be misleading, and equally um, lay descriptions of breathlessness can be confusing for the for the health professional trying to listen for particular mm -hmm. pieces of information. So we were trying to think of um, how the use of language can daily make. So here's an example. So the, the Durham um, uh, lead of the project, uh, Professor Jane McDawson and uh, an anthropologist, medical anthropologist, Rebecca Oxley, uh, found that when respiratory patients were invited to take part in what's called in the UK pulmonary rehabilitation, um, they were put off. And they were put off because mm. the term rehabilitation is often associated with, you know, substance um, misuse and addiction. Um, but actually what pulmonary rehabilitation means is, is it's a class where they teach you various exercises so you can get more, you know, lung function. Mm. So there's, there's lots of interesting stuff about language and about I think the lack of precision or the mismatch between medical meanings, lay meanings, mm -hmm. medical uh, information, and lay descriptions that we were interested in in the project. James, can I follow up with you about that on one particular aspect of this, is, and that's intubation. Mm -hmm. and I've, I've heard some discussion about the difficulty of clinicians, so it's incredibly invasive, terrifying, um, and the, the necessity of taking the time that clinicians would prefer to take a, a, a fair amount of time describing in detail what will happen. Yeah. Put that against what you were already describing as the press of time, the press of resources, the press of materials. Um, have you felt that, that tension? Can you talk a little bit about um, how even some of these techniques that Javi's talking about can be used or have been used in something as, as devastating as intubation yeah I, I think uh, in the in that kind of emergency critical illness setting it is almost impossible to have that meaning and draw out those meaningful conversations and and to tease open the, the types of breathlessness um uh, to the point where the triaging that was going on that we were setting ourselves up for um, was that we were made, trying to make those types of decisions in a very short period of time just by then to the fact that we were, were expecting to see hundreds of patients over the course of hours, not days. And so the triaging decisions about intubation was, were happening with minimal, if no discussion. So the opposite. Now, 
if you take that into perhaps a, um, a different setting and somebody that I was looking after, they might have a, I may be able to spend half an hour with them and say, look, if things get worse. The next thing is intubation. Um, um, I, I, I think that talking about trying to project what they might experience is, it would be wrong. And I don't, we don't generally do that. You might feel this, you might feel that it's more a kind of what, what might be right for, for you. Um, if I go back to, to kind of these, these concepts of how the, the words and the experience of breathlessness can tease out the differences of different pathology, maybe, uh, uh, you know, so some of the research into breathlessness is, um, and the descriptors of breathlessness to try and work out diagnosis. So there's been phrases like air hunger, which have been relayed back to problems of the pulmonary interstitium. The lung, the, the, and then there's been um, chest tightness, which is generally kind of clustered around airway and bronchospasm and asthma. But I think they're problematic. I think they're frameworks developed by physiology researchers to try and understand the complexity of the signals that they might get from neuroimaging or the signals reported from patients. What I think that the Life of Breath Project is trying to, trying to give patients and clinicians the, the permission to have a more detailed discussion that isn't constricted by diagnosis. And I'm saying that as a person who people come to see me and I want to diagnosis, so For I've got sure. to get yeah, to that. Yeah. But you've got to have a conversation where people feel listened to and part of the therapy is that they're able to use the language. People who go and see their clinicians often uh, rehearse what they're going to say or what they think they're allowed to say. Mm. And the life of breath was about saying, actually, we want to hear the language of how you experience breathlessness. If the most important thing to you is that actually you um, worry about being able to pick up your granddaughter, then actually you have permission to say that in clinic. And the discussion can be much broad and granular in that way. And that uh, it's kind of permission to talk about it in in language which is meaningful for you. That seems to me um, I want to find a way to get you somehow in conversation with other folks I've talked to who do research in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, for example, or in Jefferson County, Texas. We have populations of people who live on the fence line of America's mo most heavily air polluting petrochemical mm. plants, and where um, uh, nasal symptoms, sort of having a perma permanent cold mm. has been normalized, naturalized. Breathing difficulty has been normalized and naturalized to the point at which the kind of invitation you're both talking about to actually invite someone to actually just describe what it's like for you to breathe. Um, that seems to be very needed there. Mm. There's a perception there also that people right now are, and I think it's the research is ongoing, how much more susceptible they may be in these communities to COVID-19 because they already have underlying mm. um, trauma. They already have sort of lung, lung distress. But the ability to talk about it the way you're both describing mm. in a sort of everyday non-clinical way um, is made extra complicated by factors of race, by factors of socioeconomic status, or the inability of someone to even get into a healthcare setting in the first place. Do you see similar socioeconomic or um, sort of divisions of society in, in the UK borne out in the way people talk about how they breathe? Absolutely, yes. And, 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 and Corey Maguire, who's a, um, a historian on our project, has, has, has done great work on uh, looking at coal miners and, and a lot of the development of spirometry and the kind of the, the measurement of their breathlessness and the descriptions of their breathlessness and what was normal um, have echoes right to, to, to that conversation and to the point where a lot of their kind of normal lung normal for a minor it's only you could only get compensation if you're actually lower than the very low level of somebody who'd worked their whole life down the mine mm. um, uh, and I think there were some cultural aspects of that people would would kind of brag about you know a coal miner's cough as a kind of a badge of honor mm -hmm. of having a hard mm -hmm. you know meaningful job uh, and, and labor and to not report it that's a pretty good description for a doctor of uh, sophisticated historical research. Your project has really worked well, I think. Uh, <laughs> really. It's teeth into me. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I, we're almost up on time. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls. I want to get to one more question if you, if you have time. I know it's getting really late there, so I want to be cognizant. But I do have a nice question here from uh, Amy Slayton. And she says, listening to the guests together, it's so clear that we conceptualize breath as an individual experience in some moments and as a collective experience in others. And she's wondering 
what you think about that and how we might be thinking about that in terms of, of COVID. So, you know, how can we think about breathing? How can we think about recovery as a collective experience? I think we're gonna need that in these times so we don't isolate people. I've been really worried about victims, but also about survivors who in the United States have been so far mostly forgotten and pushed to the side. But yes. they will need to hear their voices about the collective experience of recovery, right? I mean, Javi, can I get a, a your sense of this notion of individualism and collectivity when it comes to breathing? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's all, well, breathing is one of the ways, well, one of the, maybe the most um, um, emblematic way in which our connectedness is, is expressed, right? When you exhale, I inhale, and vice versa. And, and um, when you think about, especially um, the challenges like air pollution, um, <clears throat> I think something like 90% of the world's population breathes polluted air or unacceptably, unacceptably polluted air. <clears throat> and we all we all know that, and we all acquiesce somehow. Mm. Um, so there is no well. There's there's a few things. I mean, I think on the one hand, breathlessness or breathing is associated with life, and so breathlessness is perceived as the most acute threat to your individual existence at the time in which it is experienced. <clears throat> on the other hand. We are all becoming increasingly unable to breathe because the air we breathe is increasingly more and more polluted. The the, the politics of air pollution, of, of smoking, um, of of various you know public health measures um, to do with say you know exercise or or whatever they're they're all collective and they're all they're all shared. So in some ways. Um, the, Philosopher Emmanuel Levinas talked about about <clears throat> about breath and breathing as being, you know, the way in which we we actively embody that 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 idea that we're all connected to one another, that we're all dependent on one another, and that our our faith is, is shared in that respect. So I think the people who've had COVID and the people who haven't, and well, how eventually many more will have had it. Um, I think that separation doesn't strike me as um, as something that will be very important. I mean, I think what, what is maybe at the forefront of this idea of the, the collective experience is really the, the, the social distancing, the isolation, the shared experience, and so on. Um, I'm not belittling the experience. I know people have had very, very frightening experiences. People have lost loved ones that death told Phenomenal. I'm not belittling any of that, but I think the the collective experience here is one where we're all scared of each other, um, and that's the, the 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 thing we need to contend with. I think at the moment. James, final thoughts. As a physician, you have, um, uh, according to public opinion polls, uh, people trust you. Um, you've already shared with us today um, insights that are privileged, most of us don't have access to. Right now there's a lot of responsibility. Uh, people like me are asking you to stay up late and answer questions late into the night, but it's because we're desperate right now for knowledge and sense-making in this moment. Any final thoughts to anything Javi just said or anything we talked about today that you'd like to underline? I think the, the following on from Javi's point, the collective experience is, is a massive issue. Um, and, but also the route out of this is gonna be, have to be a collective one as well global kind of effort um so uh, you know that, that there's no way one island or one country is going to be able to do it i think we have to do it together well i think that i can't imagine a, a better way to to conclude our discussion and thank you for joining me on this 50th episode of covid calls my guests on monday will be vivian Choi and malka older so please join me next week we're on Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on COVID calls. I want to thank my guests today, Javi Carroll and James Dodd from the Life of Breath Project in Bristol, UK, and Sarah Milov from the University of Virginia. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you.
Stay healthy, everyone. We'll talk to you on Monday.